I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I told the elders and deacons when we all met together this week, I really did intend to get all the way to the end of chapter 11 this week, but I failed miserably. So this morning we are going to hear God's word from Hebrews chapter 11, and we will begin in verse 29, and we will get all the way through verse 31. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon our God once again in prayer and ask for his merciful help. Almighty God, we are so thankful that you are our God and we are your children. We are so thankful that before the foundation of the world, you chose to set your loving and gracious favor upon us. We cannot fathom why that was, but we rejoice that it was. And so we ask that as we hear your word again this morning, if there are any here who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that you would do your miraculous work by the power of your spirit and your word, and you would awaken them to their salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray for those here who are walking by faith in Christ, that you would do an equally miraculous work and preserve them for another day that you might bring us all safely into the new heavens and the new earth when you send your Son to judge the living and the dead and welcome us home. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 31. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of our God, for which we rejoice. Do you pray for miracles? Are you praying for a miracle in your life right now? Kids, by miracle... I mean when God chooses to work in his world without or overruling or working against his normal, everyday, natural causes. For God, we believe, rules over the entire world, and he directs everything that happens in his world from the biggest event down to the smallest detail. We call this ruling and directing God's providence. 
Have you ever had experiences in your life that just amazed you and you thought, that was so providential? Well, I'm here to tell you that everything that happens in your life is providential. And normally, God works his providence through natural and secondary causes. For example, when you get sick, God normally heals you either through your immune system, which he designed kicking into gear and making you better over time, or by doctors using their God-given knowledge and abilities and medicines to, again, help you feel better. That would be God working through his ordinary providence. But sometimes God works without those means, or above those means, or even against those means, and so he works an extraordinary providence, which means he just takes the, the cold or the cancer away. We call that kind of work of God a miracle. And so again, I ask you, do you pray for miracles? And if so, what kind of miracles do you pray for? Maybe you are praying right now for physical healing for you or for a loved one. You're, you're praying that the cancer or the chronic pain or the debilitating disease would just be healed and taken away once and for all. Maybe you're praying for God to take away the unrelenting fear or sadness that falls upon and dampens your heart day after day like a cold, dreary rain. Maybe you're praying for reconciliation in a relationship that just feels irreparably damaged. Maybe you're praying for some kind of breakthrough in parenting with your kids. Maybe you're praying for restoration in your marriage. Maybe you're praying for companionship because you are so lonely. Maybe you're praying for some kind of material, financial provision, a job, some other means of helping you. You could be praying for any number of miracles. And it's good to pray for miracles. Even a Reformed Presbyterian pastor thinks it's okay to pray for miracles. We still believe in miracles. But maybe as you are praying, you are feeling discouraged because you don't think you're seeing any miracles. Maybe you're even at the point that you are getting angry and bitter. Maybe you hear me read about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea or the walls of Jericho just falling down when Israel shouts really loud and you think, I want to experience that. Will God ever do something like that for me? Have you ever felt or thought that way before? Does that describe your thoughts and feelings right now? Well, if so, I want you to listen carefully because the three verses that I just read for you describe three miracles. And my argument to you this morning is that the greatest miracle described in these verses was not when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea is on dry land. 
It was not when the walls of Jericho just came tumbling down. The greatest miracle you just heard from God's word was when a prostitute did not perish with the disobedient. Which I'm going to argue means more than just she was spared from the tumbling walls in Jericho. Because the greatest miracle that has ever happened, that ever does happen in this world, is when sinners who deserve the wrath and judgment of God are saved and forgiven and cleansed from their sin and welcomed into loving fellowship with God. For salvation from beginning to end is a miracle. Saving faith is a miracle. Ending faith is a miracle. Because it's not only miraculous when a sinner comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is equally miraculous when a Christian remains a Christian day after day. You know, one of my favorite preachers is John Piper. And I remember a sermon where the first words out of his mouth were, I am amazed that I am still a Christian. And as each day goes by and I live with my own sinful heart, I am beginning to understand that amazement. It is amazing that sinners are saved. It is amazing that sinners are preserved. And so my aim this morning is to help you see that salvation really is the greatest miracle in the world. And I want you, if you've been saved, to start putting everything else you're praying for in that perspective. I want you to rejoice in this miracle, to regain perspective, hope, and joy, seeing that God has and is still working in your life, even as you may be waiting for him to work in other ways. And for those of you here this morning who may not be a believer in Jesus Christ, and I don't know who you are, my aim is simply to help you understand the necessity of faith in Christ and to plead with you once again, place your faith in Christ. So toward that end, I'm going to offer three more lessons regarding faith in action, which we've been looking at for many weeks now as we slowly plod through Hebrews 11. But then at the end, I'm going to bring us back to what I think is the main point of the entire book of Hebrews, which is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and exhort and encourage you once again, have faith in him. So three more lessons on faith in action. Number one, we see in verse 29 that faith makes all the difference. As our author continues his catalog of exemplary faith in action, for the first time, he not only gives us the, the positive side and example of faith, he gives us the negative unbelieving side. The positive side is the Israelites crossing the Red Sea by faith in God. Most of you are probably very familiar with this story. Israel has been 
enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Pharaoh, after 10 plagues, finally lets Israel go. So they leave, but eventually they come face to face with a giant body of water, the Red Sea. To make matters worse, Pharaoh changes his mind. He loads up all his chariots, gets his army, starts chasing after the Israelites. So as they look one way, they see big body of water. The other way, they see big scary army chasing us. And we are told that they were terrified. But Moses tells them, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then God commands Moses, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Moses obeys. God sends a strong east wind that blows over the water all night. The waters part. There is now a dry path. Israel walks across to safety. But the Egyptians keep pursuing. They see the same divided sea. They see the same dry path. And so they attempt to cross as Israel did. But their chariots get stuck. God causes them to fall into a panic. And then he causes those water walls to come falling down upon the Egyptians. And they drown. What was the crucial difference between these two outcomes? Because it's the same sea. It's the same dry land. It's the exact same event. Two peoples try to cross. One does so safely, the other drowns. What's the difference? Well, it wasn't their differing ethnicities, nationalities, histories, language, feelings, finances, occupations, intellectual capacities, experiences, or social statuses. All of those differences meant nothing. The only difference that was of any consequence was one people had faith in God, the other people did not. One people obeyed God's command when he said, go forward and trusted in his sovereign control. The other people disobeyed God's command, which was let my people go, and they defied his sovereign control. There is only one difference. One distinction that matters in this world, and that is whether or not you have faith in God. The gospel is the dividing line in the world. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 12. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division." For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What Jesus means is that his person and message of peace and salvation will separate humanity between those who receive him and those who reject him. 
Faith makes all the difference. The division of the Red Sea was one event that resulted in two outcomes. For the people of faith, that event was salvation. For the people of unbelief, that same event was judgment. And the same is true with God's work in Christ. There is one Christ. There is one incarnation, one crucifixion, one resurrection, one ascension, one glorification. And for those who receive this Christ and his work by faith, that is salvation. But for those who reject this Christ and his work, that same reality is judgment. And so I hope you see with all of the very real needs that you came to church this morning with, the need for faith in Christ is the biggest need that you have. It doesn't matter what you do, what you say, what you think, what you feel. If you do not have faith in Christ, your future is judgment. As Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. No matter how good it looks to the rest of the world. Faith in Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. Which is why I say it makes all the difference. You need faith. But you need to understand, number two, that faith is not you working for your salvation. Faith is watching God work for your salvation. See, the danger of emphasizing faith, which we must do because the Bible does, is that we subtly begin to think, ah, I get it. Faith is my work to please God, make him love me, and save me. So God had his side of my salvation. Now, now here's my contribution that earns everything that God has done. But there is a big difference between saying faith must work and saying faith is a work. In other words, the Bible is clear that faith works. It is active. Faith actively knows God, believes God, and trusts God. And then faith works itself out in loving obedience to God. This is why James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he says, show me your faith apart from your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith is living and active. But this is different than saying faith is your work that saves you. Because Paul is also clear, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You'll notice there that Paul says salvation, everything, including your faith, is a gift from God, meaning even your faith is a gift from God. 
Similarly, similarly, Paul says in Philippians 2 that, that you must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he quickly says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So faith is not your work for your salvation. Your faith is God's work in you. It is part of God's gift to you in salvation. And by it, then, you can finally see and receive all that he has done for you in Jesus Christ. This is clear in the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho. For what did you hear me read in Exodus? Moses tells Israel not to fear, but then he just says, you stand there and see what the Lord is going to do for you. You're not saving yourself. You just get to watch the Lord work for your salvation. The account of the Red Sea crossing ends with this summary. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Or consider the story of Jericho. Here again, we have a description of faith in Hebrews 11 that is in the passive voice. Just like we did earlier in verse 23 where Moses receives something by faith, by the faith of his parents. And so again, we read, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And of course, that doesn't mean the walls had faith, and so they obeyed and came tumbling down. It means Israel had faith, and so the walls came tumbling down. But again, this acting in faith, by faith, was simply watching and receiving God's work for their salvation. For how is it that the walls came tumbling down? Well, God commanded the people to walk around the city for six days with seven priests blowing seven trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant. So they would get up one morning, they would walk around, blow their trumpets, then go back to their camp, go to sleep, get up, do that again. But then on the seventh day, they had to walk around the city seven times, blowing their trumpets until they heard a long blast from a ram's, ram's horn. Then they just yell really loud and the walls come down. Now, we could get up and walk around every building in Kalamazoo, walk around seven times, yell really loud. Nothing's going to happen. It wasn't that that actually made the walls come tumbling down. It was God's supernatural provision. So did Israel have to actively walk and obey by faith? Absolutely. But ultimately, this simply allowed them to watch God work for their salvation. So faith was not their work for salvation. It was patiently waiting for and watching God work for salvation. But I want you to notice something else here, because that salvation did not come all at once, did it? They did not just have to walk by faith for one day and everything was okay. As I reread through Joshua 
6 this past week in preparation for the this sermon, I was struck by the apparent monotony of faith. As I said, they, they get up, you, you read it, they, they get up, they, they walk around, they go back to their tents, and they go to sleep. After the first day of walking, it says, so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And later it says, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Brothers and sisters, there are days when walking by faith in God feels like walking around a fortified city just hoping walls are going to start tumbling down and nothing happens. You may even think, why am I doing this again? How is this going to accomplish anything? And let's be honest, sometimes we feel like reading our Bibles and praying and coming to church and singing songs is about as useful as just walking around a city and yelling really loud. And after day three or day four or decade three or decade four, we begin to think, I've had it. This doesn't work. And perhaps even bitterness begins to creep in because we think God is toying with me. Or maybe this is just all a big joke or fantasy. Yet God had told Israel nothing was going to happen for the first six days. Nothing was going to even happen for the first six times around on the seventh day. They had to obey to the very end of God's command. Because faith in action is not a solitary act of obedience. Faith in action is a life of obedience. Now you may counter, well, it was easier for them because God told them exactly on what day, at what time it was going to come down. He hasn't told me that. But I would point out, even though, yes, those were literal instructions in Joshua chapter 6, they are also instructive for us. For the number 7 throughout the Bible is the number of completion, of the fullness of time. And so this story reminds us that even though God doesn't tell us the exact day and hour that he is going to act, he assures us he will act at the exact right moment in the fullness of his time, not ours. For the Red Sea dividing and the walls of Jericho falling were not God's ultimate salvation to Israel. That, that was a good thing that happened for them, but that wasn't the fulfillment of his Abrahamic promise to them. They were getting glimpses and foretastes of that salvation, but not yet the fullness of it. And so you need to remember that God's people had to wait for thousands of years before that promised salvation came. And when did that salvation come, which came with the birth of Christ? Paul tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God acted in the fullness of his time at the exact right moment. And that moment was a lot longer than Israel anticipated. 
Christian, God doesn't command you to work for your salvation, but he does command you to work out your salvation, which is obediently waiting for and watching him work for your salvation. And there may be days when it feels like it's not doing anything. But just as God sent his son in the fullness of time to live, to die, to rise again for your salvation, he has promised he will send his son again in the fullness of time to complete that salvation, judging the living and the dead, gathering the elect, and establishing the new heavens and the new earth. Your job until then is to just keep circling the city by faith. You get up, you walk around by faith, you go to bed and you get up and you do it again the next day. The salvation you need is from sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus has promised that one day he will end that forever. So we keep waiting, we keep walking, and we keep watching. Lesson number three, we see in these verses that faith can save anyone. Faith is necessary because it's the great dividing line of humanity. It makes all the difference. By faith, we're not working for God's salvation, but we are watching God's work for us. And so we see that faith itself is the greatest miracle that receives the greatest miracle. Because salvation is ultimately when a sinner, who the Bible tells us is naturally dead in sin, hating and hostile to God, defiled and stained by sin, and therefore incapable of loving God, obeying God, or even receiving God's offer of salvation. When that kind of person becomes alive in Christ, loves and trusts God, is cleansed of every single sin ever committed, and is freed and enabled now to obey God. That is the greatest miracle there is. It is nothing less than spiritual and one day physical resurrection and transformation. It is eternal life with God. Can I ask you, can, can you imagine any greater miracle in your life than that? I can't. And the good news is that anyone can experience that miracle. Look at verse 31. This is the verse of why I couldn't skip and keep going all the way to verse 40. I couldn't skip Rahab. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The prostitute did not perish with the disobedient. Kids, I will let your parents decide how much they want to explain what it means to be a prostitute to you. All you need to know to follow me right now is to know that prostitution is a life of disobedience against God's will. It is a shameful way of life. And yet we just read that this prostitute did not perish with the disobedient, which means she wasn't counted as one of the disobedient. Why? Because she acted by faith 
And by faith, even prostitutes will not perish in the final judgment. If you want to see this a little more clearly, turn to Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, Israel is now getting ready to enter and conquer Canaan. And the first city they come to is Jericho. And Jericho, Jericho is a very well-fortified city, really high, strong walls. So Joshua sends two spies to sneak in and survey the city. But while they're in there, the king of Jericho discovers that there are Israelites in there. And so he starts looking for them to kill them. But he can't find them. Why? Because a prostitute named Rahab took them in and hid them and then let them sneak out, putting a a rope out her, her window, and they were able to escape to safety. Now, why did Rahab risk her own life for two Israelite spies? The answer is because Rahab had heard a message that absolutely changed her life. Beginning in verse 9 of Joshua 2, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's why Rahab hid the spies. She had heard of God's salvation of his people. Now notice that everyone in Jericho heard this same message of God's salvation and protection of Israel. But only Rahab believes the report. Now, by that, I don't mean she's the only one who believes it's true. She's very clear. Everybody in Jericho believes it's true, and they are freaking out. But she is the only one who believes to the point that she says, their God is God, and I want to be on his side. And so in her actions, she proclaims, I'm with him now. Their God, that's God. She believed God. She trusted God. And so she asked the spies to swear kindly that they will deal with her and their family, which they promised to do. They put a scarlet cord in the window of her home. She brings her family into her home, and all who are in that room are spared. And I believe it's significant that we're told that the cord is scarlet. I think that for two reasons. First, because that's at least close to the color of blood. And the Israelites had done something similar in Egypt when they put blood on their houses when the angel of death was going to come. And they, they knew that when that blood was on the walls, the angel of death passed over and they were spared the judgment that everybody else met. I think it's also significant because scarlet is the color of sin. For the Lord says through Isaiah, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Rahab experienced two salvations on that day. One greater, one lesser. The lesser salvation is that when the walls of Jericho fell, her home didn't fall. And that is significant because Joshua specifies her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. (laughs) The walls come tumbling down. Her house is in the wall. And yet when those walls supernaturally fall, her house supernaturally doesn't. That's a miracle. But it's not the greatest miracle, and it's not Rahab's greatest salvation. Because when Israel devotes everything in the city to destruction, it says they they burn the city and everything in it, we read, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all belong to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So she was spared, but more than that, she became an Israelite. She became a member of the covenant of grace. And this means that by faith, her scarlet sins would one day be washed by a scarlet blood when a greater Joshua, because the name Jesus, that's just the Greek for Joshua, the Lord saves, would come to shed his blood for the sins of all of his people. And one of those people was Rahab the prostitute. And you want to know something even more amazing. Rahab was actually one of the means by which that Savior came into the world. No Rahab, no Messiah. For in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, you only find three women named, and one of those women is Rahab. It says in Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now you know Boaz is the one who married Ruth. Now you know, Boaz, very godly man, he he learned that godliness from his mother Rahab, the former prostitute who is now an Israelite. And we know, therefore, that Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of King David, and it's from David's line that the Messiah is coming. And yet every, almost every time Rahab's named in the Bible, there's always that little clarifier, Rahab the prostitute. Almost every single time, Old Testament, New Testament, we're reminded of that. And you may think Rahab's being like, did you really have to include that every time you mentioned my name? I actually think Rahab rejoices that that is recorded almost every time her name is mentioned. Because her story reminds us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, even the worst sinners we can imagine. More than once, the Gospels note that when Jesus came, he came spending time with sinners, with tax collectors, and prostitutes. 
Because Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is when Jesus has dinner with a Pharisee. Pharisees, these were the law-abiding citizens. And as he's having dinner with this Pharisee, a woman comes in who is described as a sinner, which very well may mean she was a prostitute. And she comes in weeping before Jesus and anointing and kissing his feet, which makes the Pharisee really mad. And he says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So Jesus tells a parable of two debtors who had their debts forgiven. One was a really large debt, one was a smaller debt. And he asks the Pharisee, which of these two do you think loved more? Meaning, which one was more thankful for the forgiveness? And the Pharisee correctly says, well, the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And so Jesus says to the Pharisee of the woman, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Jesus does know exactly who this woman is. And he says, her sins, though they, which are many, are forgiven. And he turns to the woman and he tells her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. By faith in Christ, even prostitutes will not perish. For faith in Christ saves anyone from any sin. Rahab's life proclaims this to the world. Her salvation is a demonstration of the greatest miracle that ever takes place on the earth. By faith in Christ, sinners are saved from all of their sin and they are welcomed into loving fellowship with God and his covenant community. And so I close simply with this exhortation. Have faith in God. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the distinguishing characteristic of Christian faith is not its nature, it is not its strength, it is its object and direction. In other words, what makes Christian faith effective is only that it looks to and receives Christ. Faith in anything or anyone else cannot save you, but faith in Christ can and will save anyone because it is not faith that saves you. It is Christ who saves you through faith. And perhaps some of you struggle to place your faith in Christ because, let's be honest, you don't really think you're a Rahab. You don't think your sin is that bad. You'd, you'd be very offended if someone put you and a prostitute in the same category of sinner. So I pray that the Lord would finally pierce your soul and convict you of your sin. For until you realize that you that I am a great sinner. You will not seek a savior. But remember the apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, not a prostitute, 
who came to see that he was no better than a prostitute, saying to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Until you get that, everything I'm saying this morning just won't matter to you. You need to see your sin. But I pray that you will see your sin only so that you will seek and see a savior because I have been authorized by God Almighty to offer that savior to you. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is the greater Joshua. He is the Lord who saves. And so maybe some of you do feel like a Rahab this morning. You're overwhelmed by just how sinful you are. And so I simply invite you to listen to your Lord Jesus when he tells you, believe in God, believe also in me. And what should you believe? You believe what the author of Hebrews has been teaching us throughout this letter. That Jesus is the supreme ruler of the whole world and that he is the sufficient sacrifice for all sin. Your scarlet sins can be forgiven and cleansed by his scarlet blood. For as we have heard, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And again, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So for those of you who are praying for miracles and are maybe discouraged, if you are a believer, please do not think, God never works miracles for me. God has worked the greatest miracle for you because you have safely passed through the sea of God's wrath and judgment because Christ took the full force of that sea of wrath upon himself on the cross. And your house may stand secure because Jesus let the walls of sin and death come tumbling down upon him on the cross. So keep praying and keep plotting by faith. Keep waiting and watching for God to work for your salvation. For Christ came in the fullness of time to make all things new, and he will come in the fullness of time to complete that renewal. All you and I must do is have faith in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I once again ask you, to work a miracle, to save sinners here who have not placed their faith in Christ. Renew them, create that faith, grant them grace to receive Jesus. And for your people here this morning, I pray that you would again preserve them another day, that you would keep them in the fold and not let them wander away. 
We ask this in the merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.